All right, beloved, let us pray. God, open our hearts and our minds that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy, deep and surprising joy, what you have to say to us this day. This we pray in the name of our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As Tom said, over the past six weeks, we at First Pres have been working our way through a sermon series entitled, Be the Church. I know, very original, super groundbreaking stuff to talk about in the church. Guided by the book of Ephesians, we have looked for answers to questions that the body of Christ in every time and place has asked themselves in times of great change, upheaval, and even possibility. Questions like, why do we exist? What were we before all of this? What binds us together as Christians? What keeps us together as the church? How does this change the way we live our lives? And last but not least, where do we go from here? Helping us to answer our final question of the series is a passage from Ephesians 5 titled, The Christian Household. Now, if you are not familiar with this text, let me just warn you, it's a doozy. Historically, it has been used to justify all sorts of practices and beliefs that I, quite frankly, find unbiblical, unchristian, and generally uncool. As for the passage itself, I, quite frankly, find it to be rather beautiful and hopeful. And so today I ask that you approach our reading with a curious mind and an open heart as together we seek to answer the question, where do we, the church, go from here? Now because of the complicated nature of today's passage, I decided not to simply rely on the usual NRSV translation, but instead I brought in an expert to help me with the more confusing sections. So here now a reading from the Epistle to the Ephesians chapter 5, the Tom Ellison Revised Standard Version. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always on behalf of all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, appointing yourselves under one another out of reverence for Christ. So wives to your husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the savior. Just as the church is appointed under Christ, so also to wives to their husbands in all things. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and handed himself over on her behalf in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish." 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Exactly 247 years ago, on July 2nd, 1776, in the city of Philadelphia, the 56 members of the Second Continental Congress of the United Colonies voted unanimously to declare their independence and freedom from Great Britain. Two days later, on July 4th, that very same Congress voted on and approved a document we all know as the Declaration of Independence. Now, I know that we are currently in the year 2023 and not 1776, and that we are gathered in California and not Pennsylvania. And I know, trust me, I know that the 118th U.S. Congress is not the second U.S. Congress. But the words of this document have remained constant. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and... Good, y'all were paying attention in history class. And the pursuit of happiness. Okay, now let's just imagine that on the anniversary week of our historic independence, I, a citizen of the United States of America, stood before you all and said, we, yes, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of your own private jet. How would that make you feel? My guess is that some of you might secretly be delighted, while most of you would be publicly horrified. How dare you take the sacred and historic values of this great nation and profane them with this revision? Our country was built on these unalienable rights. Who are you to change them? Now, as surprising as this might be, Ephesians 5 is not that different. As I've said before, every time we read any letter to the church, we are essentially reading someone else's mail from an entirely different culture nearly 2,000 years ago. So before we judge this passage at face value, we need to understand the time and the place in which it was written, which means in the case of Ephesians 5, we need to understand household codes from the Greco-Roman culture in the first century. One of my generation's most influential voices in scriptural contextualization is the late author and blogger Rachel Held Evans. Commenting on these household codes, she writes, the Christians in the churches at Ephesus who first heard this letter read aloud would instantly recognize Paul's version of the household codes as a sort of radical Christian remix of familiar Greco-Roman philosophy regarding household structure. Central to the prevailing philosophy of the day was the idea that a free man ruled over his household as a sovereign exercising unilateral authority over his subordinate wives, children, and slaves. 
Preserving this household culture was thought to be critical to, be, to preserving society as a whole. In other words, Ephesians did not set out to establish a new household code or even a Christian one. But rather, their aim was to transform the one that already existed and was widely accepted as virtuous and good. Because whether you were Jewish or Greek, Aristotle or Philo, the self-evident truth of that time was that a subservient wife was a good one. A compliant child was an honorable one. And an obedient slave was a respectable one unquestioned, unreciprocated, unmitigated submission always and only went in one direction, towards that of the free man. So yes, it makes sense that our 2023 sensibilities are horrified by that one verse that tells wives to submit to their husbands. But guess what? For the people who this letter was actually written to, the 10 verses telling husbands to honor and love and regard their wives was even more controversial. All right, let me pause right here and acknowledge that so much about this entire section of Ephesians and this part of the Bible is confusing and possibly to you even infuriating. My guess is that many of us know, want to know why the early church and why the word of God didn't just outright condemn these unjust systems and practices outright. How can we find anything good in the midst of so much bad? I get it. I really, I really do. And yet one of the most beautiful and hopeful things about scripture and about the person of Jesus is that they are both embedded in and embroiled in humanity. Real imperfect, problematic, particular humanity. A humanity that comes with a ton of baggage and complication, no matter the time or the place, which means that half the battle of reading this ancient text with modern eyes is not burning down the entire forest for the sake of some challenging trees. Now, if we can do that, we would see that the mandate, the moral, the mic drop of Ephesians 5 is this. Submit to one another. Or to use Jesus' own words, you have heard it said, wives, submit to your husbands. But I say, husbands, you must also submit to your wives. You who have power, give it away. You who don't, still honor the people who do. It doesn't matter if you are at church or at home or in the world. Submit yourself to one another. Now, you have to admit that isn't the most inspiring way to close this letter. Paul isn't offering this fledgling church a rousing halftime prep talk where he tells them to get their head in the game, you know, build a following, fill the pews, pack your programming, expand your budget, be the church, but bigger and better and bolder. If anything, he does the exact opposite. You see, instead of doubling down on the sacred community, he talks about the secular household. Why? To remind these early Christians of the most radical part of the gospel, that Jesus Christ changed everything, not 
just the church, not just his followers, not just the people of God, but everything. Friends, dividing walls are torn down. Barriers are broken. Power structures are upended. Humanity is made whole. Now, how is the church called to embody that radical truth? Well, according to Ephesians, by doing something even more radical, by submitting ourselves to one another, by giving ourselves over to one another, by placing ourselves beneath one another. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And we are simply called to do the same. All right, now, what does all of that, these household codes, what does all of that have to do with us here today? Or to put it another way, where do we go from here? After establishing ourselves as the first Presbyterian church of this city, after a century of world-renowned ministry, after growing and contracting and growing and contracting, after building and mortgaging and repairing and paying off our debts, after being the church in so many ways for so many years, where do we go from here? That is the million-dollar question. That is the question that I get the most as your senior pastor in different forms, of, co of course. Sometimes it's, what is your vision for the church? Other times it's, where do you see the church in five years? But really the sentiment is the same. It's, where, Charlene, do we go from here? Now, traditionally, the church universal has answered that question rather literally. Where should we go? What countries should we travel to? What peoples should we evangelize to? What communities should we enter into, reach out to, and then bring back into the church? I would go as far as saying as our literal interpretation of that question has birthed our modern understanding of the concept of mission. Mission is where the church goes. It's what the church does. It's who the church serves, right? Now, at its best, the understanding of mission pushes us to places we wouldn't otherwise go and interact with people we wouldn't otherwise interact with. But at its worst, this understanding of mission limits where and when and with whom we see God at work. It puts God in a box, and it drives the church to care more about the submission of others than our submission to others. But if Ephesians teaches us anything from start to finish, it is that the church was never supposed to be the end in and of itself. The church was never supposed to be the goal or the destination or the assignment. Jesus is the end, the goal, the destination. The gospel, that is the assignment. And we as the church are called to participate in that mission by taking everything we talk about in here, everything we are about in here, everything we say we care about, are passionate about, are committed to, and live it out there, in our homes and at work, with our neighbors and perfect strangers, in the street and at the grocery store, with our power and with our money, using our time and our talents. Where do we go from here? 
Well, it only took me about three years to figure this out, but my hope, my vision for this church is that we are just as clear about what it means to be the church out there than we are in here. So to those of you who are hoping for a clear answer, let me just say this. Where we are going is far less important than how we are going to get there. And to the question of how, I actually do have a very clear answer. We are going to go the same way the early church went, by submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to one another, and to those God has called for such a time as this. In an effort to do just that, I have two very exciting announcements. First, at the end of this summer, we will be commissioning a strategic plan committee, a group of humble and earnest First Pres folks who will take seriously the question of the day, not in an effort to find a right answer or a forever answer, but a faithful answer that will guide our ministries in the next few years to come. I, too, have been guilty of answering these very important questions literally. For too long, I assumed that since I was being asked the question about vision, that it was my question to answer. It's not. The vision and direction of this church does not belong to me. It belongs to all of us through the Holy Spirit. And so if you have any recommendations of curious, courageous, and imaginative people to serve on this committee, let me know. Secondly, at the end of this month, on Sunday, July 30th, your session has called an in-person congregational meeting to vote on the terms of call for our APNC's candidate for our next associate pastor for justice and outreach. Now, I see a few members of our APNC here, and so it's true. They have found their person, our person. In two years, this committee will have called two pastors. For the first time in over a decade, we will have a fully installed pastoral team to help shepherd this church into what lies ahead. Now, some of you might have picked up on the slight title change for this position. The word mission is noticeably absent. And here's the reason why. And it goes back to everything we've been talking about today. After two years of trying to define what exactly we mean by missions for the sake of this position in the year 2023, I have had so many conversations, but I've heard one resounding conclusion from the pastors and the staff and members, and it's this. Jesus came to change everything, which means everything is mission. Everyone does missions. And our future pastor for justice and outreach gets that. Now, you will all learn more about him in the coming weeks. I know the suspense is killing you, but patience is a virtue. But for now, let me close with something he wrote in his application for this role, his answer to what he is looking for in the church. I think you'll get a sense of who our next pastor is. He writes, I am seeking a people with whom to walk the way of Jesus. I'm looking for people who seek out community because they themselves need it, who seek to be of service because it helps to mend their broken hearts, 
who stand in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed because they know their own liberation is at stake. I'm looking for people who have been freed by their faith to place relationship above being right, playfulness above prestige, curiosity above expertise, people above property, and collective thriving above self-preservation. I'm looking for people who seek to be both compassionate with others and uncompromising in their convictions, who hear the gospel most clearly in the voices of the people closest to the hurt, who look into the eyes of those dismissed by others and see not only Christ, but themselves. I'm looking for people with a hard-won hope that is dragged across the bottom and like an anchor, found purchase. I'm looking for people who are, as Wendell Berry writes, joyful, though they have considered all the facts. <laughs>